bum bum bottom 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 bum bum You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Seagull Gullickson. I'm Brad uh, Octopus Gullickson. (laughs) And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four color realm. (laughs) This month we're diving into the undersea kingdom of Aquaman and Mira, and we're applying Sue Johnson's love sense to their relationship woes. You surprised me with that one this time. I got, I had the like last time, and now you're like grabbing aquatic yeah, animals. Although I'm seagull, I guess a seagull is aquatic because no, I no. Yeah, I mean it has sea in the name. Yeah, but I don't think it's aquatic because I think that would mean that it like, like what's an aquatic bird? I don't. Uh, a seagull's an aquatic bird. Uh, it's. Got the it's like you said, sea I is think, in it. It hangs out by the sea. Yeah. It scoops up the fish from the sea. I think like a penguin is like an aquatic bird, like a duck. Uh, well, yeah, a penguin. A swan. Yeah. A duck is like a lake bird though. Yeah, but it's still aqua. Yeah. Mm. Well, I don't know what the shark to make of this. <laughs> We're doing a terrible job using Aquaman dialogue. You know, it's so funny because I really enjoyed how Danielle Page in Mira Tidebreaker leaned heavy into the, you know, what the shark and let's get the shell out of here. Like that really silly, absurd um, aqua dialogue. But when you're reading the new 52, Jeff Johns Aquaman, it's all about resisting the silliness, you know, because the outside world sees this Aquaman in the new 52 as a joke. And Johns is trying to show that, hey, this Aquaman, he's legit. He's a member of the Justice League. He's got superpowers. He's got superpowers. Why are you mocking him? Because he comes from the sea. So it's coming from a very defensive place. But I sort of like how Danielle Page leans into the silliness and how, you know, even the Jason Momoa film, which we recently just watched, how... That film, you know, it gives us Jason Momoa, who's badass and, and beefy and, and brawny, like Lisa likes the likes her dudes. But <laughs> it still has octopuses playing drums. You know, it still has the uh, the, the the circles uh, coming out at the camera when he's using his aqua telepathy. You know, that very Super Friends image. Yeah. So I think there's a nice balance there. That is what attracts me to a character like Aquaman. Yes, it's extremely silly, but you have to enjoy some of that silliness. That That's part of the charm. Am I making sense? You are making sense. And I do take slight offense at the Jeff Johns, all of the kind of tongue, tongue in cheeky, like, well, nobody likes Aquaman IRL, so nobody's going to like Aquaman in yeah. the comic. Yeah, in the New 52 version, when we meet Aquaman and he goes to Sam's restaurant, there's that blogger who is positioned there to be the uh, cynical audience member who's always dismissed Aquaman comics and is a real jerk to Arthur Curry while he's just trying to enjoy his chowder, right? And I like that 
the new 52 is coming in and trying to have a conversation with a person who dismisses Aquaman. But at the same time, as somebody who's always kind of liked Aquaman, uh, why do we have to be defensive? I think that there is like a psychological reason why society would turn against one of the lesser superheroes. Because it can't be easy being like a normal dude with normal dude powers, when you live in this world where these superheroes are doing extraordinary things, and if you think back to our Brene Brown time, the um, the effect that shame has, and when you when you have shame, you tend to compare yourselves with others. So they go like, "Well, I might not be Superman, and I might not be Batman, but I've got to be better than Aquaman, right? I just gotta." You're not. You're not. You're not. Than You're not. You have Aquaman's no powers. Rad. He he is bulletproof. <laughs> yeah, and the more that we go into this series and we explore more and more Aquaman comics, I find myself really falling for the character. And I've done a lot of outside reading from this podcast. He really has. He and, really you has. Know, last night I was up till one o'clock in the morning reading the Rebirth Aquaman, and yeah, I dig this dude. Anyway, so. Mm, Neptune's balls, I say, to all the haters out there. Yeah, cut the carp. Cut the carp. Cut that was a good carp. one. I was proud of that one. Um, I, I also <laughs> thought of kiss my trench. Does that ooh, sound too dirty? Ooh, don't know. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> kiss Lisa's trench, people. Um, Only what? one person could kiss her trench. That's me. I, that's right. Gross. Um, this is a family podcast, Lisa. How dare you take me to those depths? Oh, nobody asked me if this was a family podcast. Um, the other one I thought of is cut the mackerel. Oh, I already said cut the carp, no, which cut is the way carp, better. Cut the carp's way better. Okay. Okay. So yes, we are in episode two on our Arthur and Mira series. Last week we discussed Mira Tidebreaker from Daniel Page and uh, Stephen Byrne, and we're using, as Lisa said at the intro, Sue Johnson's love sense to discuss their relationship. And this week, we are jumping into the new 52 version of Aquaman. Uh, volume one of that is The Trench. And it is one of the first storylines that kicked off the DC Comics New 52. Um, yeah, so what does that gibberish mean? Basically, in 2011, DC Comics were once again looking to encourage new readership. They used the Flashpoint crossover event that began in their Flashbooks, but jumped throughout their monthly titles to erase their old universe and start a new one. Flashpoint's basic gist was that when Barry Allen, the Flash, went back in time and prevented his mother's murder, he altered history. Naturally, when he attempts to set things right, he cannot remake the universe perfectly, and the result is this new timeline dubbed the New 52. Lisa, I think we had a lot of conversations around this time about my anxiety around the New 52. Do you remember that? Yeah, any kind of reset event makes people get the, <laughs> the butterflies in their tum-tum. Right, right, right. I mean, because this was a major deal. You know, DC canceled all of their previous titles to debut 52 new monthly books, all with that enticing number one on the cover. There were a bunch of continuity changes that occurred, as well as, you know, they, they, they basically updated the characters and made them feel a little bit more modern, kind of like what Marvel did with their Ultimate Universe line, but this was company-wide. And yeah, caused a lot of heartache uh, amongst a lot of fans. But to be honest, 
this was a big reason why I personally returned to DC books. Well, because you, you, they were like Pokemon. You had to catch them all. You wanted to taste every single title. Yeah, and, you know, 52 somehow seemed manageable. I don't know why, but it's like, <laughs> I can get 52 number ones. So, yeah, uh, I had been an on-again, off-again DC reader, mostly Batman and Superman, but suddenly I was buying all kinds of cool books like Scott Snyder's Swamp Thing, Jeff Lemire's Animal Man, Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang's Wonder Woman. One of my faves. One of your favorites. Yeah, uh, it, it was a big deal, and I bought into it hard. I didn't love all of the titles, but there was a lot of good stuff there. Now, why 52, that number specifically? Um, what's the significance around it? Basically, there are 52 weeks in the year, and back in 2006, after DC had another mega event book called Infinite Crisis, they jumped all of their titles one year later. And there was a weekly comic series called 52 that filled in the gaps of what went down in that missing year. At the end of the series, it was also revealed that Infinite Crisis, that conclusion to that book, spawned 52 multiple universes. And it started out pretty interesting, but it also marked the point where I grew tired of a lot of the DC characters or basically a lot of the depictions of DC characters. And I fell away for a while until the new 52 uh, kicked everything off again. So basically, ever since that one year later time jump, the number 52 became DC's magic number. Not quite their Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy 42, but close enough. The new 52 branding ended in 2015 with the conclusion of yet another mega crossover event called Convergence. And in 2016, DC relaunched their titles yet again with their DC Rebirth branding, which is also when they revealed that Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' Watchmen were working their way into the main DC timeline, which is still happening in the current Doomsday Clock miniseries, slowly being published, also written by Jeff Johns and uh, illustrated by Gary Frank. I'm waiting for all of that basically to conclude before I actually read the thing. Saving one for the trades. Yeah, that's kind of become my policy lately. Uh, I still read a lot of single issues. You still read single issues, but we've become a trade family for the most part. We're drowning in them. We're drowning in them, yes. <laughs> uh, okay, Lisa, so that's the new 52 setup. Uh, for those that don't already know about Sue Johnson and Love Sense, walk us through how we're going to use her book to incorporate into the conversation around Arthur and Mira. Dr. Sue Johnson is a psychologist and family therapist who has developed a mode of therapy called EFT, Emotionally Focused Therapy, which uses the applications of attachment theory to reinforce the bond of adult romantic relationships. In her 2013 book, Love Sense, The Revolutionary New Science of Romantic Relationships, she uses studies from attachment theory and neuroscience to prove that monogamy is not only the preferred state of romantic relationships, but the natural state of romantic relationships and the lack of romantic or sexual exclusivity in a relationship is a sign that the bond with the partner is inherently weak. Yes. In choosing this book, I did not get the strongly sex-negative overtones. And um, in the second part of the book, she rants and raves against Fifty Shades of Grey. Like, the, she what? dedicates several... And then she Lisa, includes... That, that book is garbage. <laughs> that book is garbage, but I still think that kink in a consenting relationship 
can be a lovely thing. Brad and I are not into it. I don't know why I need to tell them that, that we're totally vanilla. We're the literally the most boring couple ever. Oh, but <laughs> brutal. But we Accurate. acknowledge and do not judge others. Yeah, GGG. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I forgot where I was going. Oh, she also, I didn't include this in my notes, but she listed a bunch of titles of movies where she feels like oh, no. actual monogamous sex is- Positive? Uh, or, no, is- Or promoted? Um, depicted. Okay. Do you have that list? I do. I can, think- Can you can, give me a couple of them? So Fifty Shades of Grey, bad- uh, BDSM, bad. Sue Johnson says, what's good? What's a good monogamous relationship on screen? Well, um, I have a little bit of a paragraph highlighted after she spent, let's see, a full page and a half on the evils of Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, she says, for me, the disturbing part of this book was labeling the labeling of regular non-BDSM sex as vanilla. The implication being that unless you include whips and go to the edge of pain, sex is less than satisfying. It's simply not sensational enough. In a society that does not understand emotional connection, we have to go to more and more extremes to drag our bodies into deeply felt physical excitement. This is my issue with sex negative thinking, that people assume that any depiction of sex that of sex that you're not interested in is criticism of the sex that you're having. Uh -huh. Because when you watch Fifty Shades of Grey, you see whips and chains, you go, oh, this is cool, this is hot, whatever, but you're not necessarily going, I want to incorporate whips and chains into my sexual relationship with Brad. Well, I mean, I didn't even read Fifty Shades of Grey. I didn't watch the movies because I knew, like, that's not but necessarily what I'm interested more in. more extreme scenes of sex in film, whether it's Basic Instinct or whatever. I love the movie Secretary. Secretary. You love, yeah, Secretary's great, but we don't role play Secretary in the bedroom. This episode, what is with it? <laughs> what is with... Aquaman and Mira that gets us talking about sex. Um, I think that it has less to do with them and more to do with, with Sue, Sue Johnson. Yeah, you're right. Because, you're right. I don't know, to me it's just like, I'm interested in what other uh, other people are doing, what other people's love lives are. I'm curious, but at the same time, it doesn't mean I necessarily have to bring it into my bedroom. But we're getting this on tape right now. You don't want leather masks and chains I don't. in our bedroom. Anything creates extra chores of washing and scrubbing other than just the usual. I'm like, okay. no, that sounds like that sounds like work and no thank you. Oh, I really hope my dad listens to this episode. Uh, I um, wash it in yeah, my dishwasher? Let's, 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 oh my God. Next no. to my spoons? No, no. Lisa, <laughs> anyway, oh, the movies. So the movies that she says are pro-monogamy or where monogamy works on well, screen. Yeah, like attachment approved sex. Uh -huh. Okay. The 1973 film Don't Look Now. Oh, that that movie is great and that sex scene is both hot and deeply sad. Julie Christie, Donald Sutherland, rumor is they are actually having sex on set. Oh, oh my. Um then next is The Big Easy 1986. Yeah, yeah, that's also pretty steamy. That's uh, what's that's that's Dennis Quaid and Ellen Barkin. And then uh, the next one is A History of Violence 2005. Oh, now she says- Straight that, hot. This is straight <laughs> hot sex scene. I love this sex scene. Um, she says there's two contrasting sex scenes. There, oh yes, that's true. Which one is the one positive is one? Sex, one is secure and then one is detached. Well, there's the one that, that they have later in the movie where it's almost masochistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, she says- But there's the sex scene in 
the beginning of the film where she dresses up like a cheerleader, Maria Bello, and uh, they role play their high school days uh, together. Viggo Mortensen's the other guy. Oh, that's funny, because I would consider that too kinky for Sue Johnson, but she does mention what a pleasant surprise the cheerleading outfit is. <laughs> See, she she's fighting her own kinks. Here's another one. Friends with Benefits 2011. Haven't seen that movie. She says um, that the movie is about how hard it is to keep emotions and attachment out of the bedroom. The very nature, like, like apparently, I haven't seen this movie either. Um, apparently, by the end of the movie, these people who were like, we're going to have no strings attached sex eventually end up together. And so she's going like, see, like casual sex is impossible. You'll fall in love. Hmm. Interesting. And then um, up, no. that's it. Okay, that's an odd selection of movies, many genres. I recommend all of the films that I've seen. I haven't seen Friends with Benefits, but the other three, uh, highly recommendable. Well, she really, if you don't see these movies, in her book, Love Sense, she does go into a lot of detail of what happens in these scenes, so. Okay, all right. Uh, I don't know where we were at the start of that conversation, but I'm glad I have that knowledge now. Yeah, okay, we in the last in last week's episode we were challenging her ideas of monogamy, um, and you know again we state that Lisa and I are in a monogamous totally monogamous. Please do not hit on us. If you hit on us, we'll say thank you, but no thank you. We do not go to key parties. Nope. Uh, but we do disagree with her point of view of shaming other sexuality. Right. Right. Like just like because I said, we're not into BDSM, we don't necessarily say, if you are into that, you're a bad person, or that that relationship won't work. Or that, yeah, exactly, exactly. Just anything that puts all of humanity under one big umbrella, it just doesn't work. But what I gotta say about Arthur and Mira, and in particular with the New 52 book, The Trench, it is a delight to see a monogamous couple fighting together, I mean, not fighting each other, but like fighting back to back, side by side, and still have a very healthy, loving relationship. You don't see that too often. Even in uh, comic book couples like Lois and Clark, right? Their, their power levels are so disparate that they aren't doing the same things in the same manner. You know, Lois Lane has to fight bad guys with the pen while Clark is punching Lex Luthor in the face, right? Mira and Aquaman are practically equal on the power scale. Right. And what I love about the new 52 is it's bringing Mira up to an equal character. She's still a little bit like Aquaman's girlfriend, but I feel like Jeff Johns is building to a point where this is a team up book right. and a romance. And book. just like he comments on how unpopular Aquaman is to most people. He also comments on like Mira doesn't really like to be called Aquaman. She doesn't feel the need to be associated with him at all. Yeah, unfortunately, Jeff John sort of loses the thread on their relationship, in my opinion. But Dan Abnett in Rebirth picks it up, and that dynamic, that partnership, is really the f driving force of the Rebirth line. Yeah, I really do like to see functioning married, close relationships well, represented so because you know, you know, if the couple gets together in the first movie, they're breaking it up in the second, or movie. having an argument. You know, like. Conflict is the key to drama, as you know, most like English professors will teach you. Yeah. <laughs> but that is so cliche now in our romantic relationships, especially in comic books and comic book-like movies. Yeah. Anyway, um, sorry, we went off on a little tangent there, Lisa. That's okay. Um, just to review what we talked about last week, 
In part one, entitled The Relationship Revolution, we learned all about attachment theory and how our bonding with our mother in our early years influences how we bond in romantic relationships in adulthood. There are three types of attachment, secure attachment, anxious attachment, and avoidant attachment. These styles of attachment are mutable, which means they can be retrained over time via an attachment with a secure partner, um, emotionally focused therapy, and so on. Got it. To me, I feel like my style of attachment depends on the day, who I'm hanging out with, whether I'm feeling stressed or not. Sure. So for the trench, we'll be moving into part two of her book, which is entitled The New Science of Love. Dr. Sue Johnson asserts that secure relationships are key to our emotional and physical health, which is proved by both our behavior and our brain chemistry. In terms of our emotions, human beings do better regulating with someone we trust rather than trying to suppress or regulate our emotions on our own. Sue Johnson cites an experiment by Jem Cohen of UVA in which self-reporting happily married women were hooked up to fMRI machines and told that after a cue, they would be given an electric shock. After the shock, they were asked to rate it according to painfulness. Women reported that the shock was more painful when they were alone or holding the hand of a stranger than when they were holding the hand of their spouse. Hmm. So the pain was more manageable uh -huh with their spouse around. This is a study that you're aware of, and you've brought this up in conversations with me in the past. Right. It's fascinating. It is interesting, but I would wonder if she was holding the hand of her best friend, uh -huh. or she was mm -hmm. holding mm -hmm. the hand mm -hmm. of her kindergarten teacher, mm -hmm. or whatever. Sure. Like, does it have to be the spouse, or could it just be anybody that they have- Empathy towards. A, a personal bond with. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Another sign that we evolved to be emotionally dependent on others is the presence of mirror neurons, which are the neurons of empathy, which allow us to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. Get ready, because this is an Italian name. <laughs> Neurophysiologist Giacomo Rizzolatti. Uh, you did a great job. Thank you, I got a <laughs> master's degree in opera singing. Noticed its effects when he was in the lab with a female macaque who was attached to electrodes for another experiment. So What's this a macaque? Was, it's like an ape. Okay. An ape type. Okay. Um, it might be a monkey. I can't remember if it has a tail or not. Got it. I'm trying to visualize it. But its, it's butt. not the meerkat. <laughs> no, it's not a meerkat. <laughs> um, but the macaque just happened to be hooked up to electrodes. And when uh, Giacomo reached over to pick up some food... Her brain lit up as if she was the one picking up the food. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So mirror mm. neurons are the neurons that allow us to visualize what it would be like to be another person or get excited. Em empathy. Yeah. It's the reason we like to watch movies. Uh -huh, it's uh -huh. the reason we like to read comic books about Mira and Aquaman. Because cool. we put ourselves in their shoes. All right. So Lisa, that makes sense to me. But here's my question. What does any of that have to do with promoting monogamy? From this section, what I consider Sue Johnson's number one support of the naturalness, her word, not mine, naturalness of monogamy is the brain chemical oxytocin, which is associated with love, bonding, and loyalty. Hmm. An experiment was done where heterosexual men, I have a hard time saying that, heterosexual men, Giacomo Rizzolatti, <laughs> um, heterosexual men snorted oxytocin oh and were asked huh. to stand as close as they were comfortable to an attractive stranger. Uh -huh. <laughs> so you'd think like oxytocin would be like, oh, love the one you with, uh -huh. you're with. Uh -huh. Like, well, 
I'm now, my oxytocin makes us feel calm. Oxytocin makes us feel uh, up for things. Uh-huh. So you think that like the oxytocin would make them attracted to the person that they're close to. But the men who were in committed relationships would stand further away from the stranger than the men that were not in committed relationships. So it's like snorting oxytocin doesn't make you fall in love with the person that you're with. It makes you think about the person that you're loyal to. Okay, so those guys who are in a committed relationship snorted that oxytocin and then they were thinking about their loved one. And they and they felt less comfortable. Their bubble got a little bit bigger around this attractive person. Okay. Oxytocin is found in all mammals, though only 7% of mammals are considered monogamous. Really? Yeah, so this is a contrast to birds who have a similar social chemical, which is called mesotocin. Uh-huh. And 90% of birds are monogamous. Huh. So all mammals have oxytocin, but most mammals are not monogamous. Are not using it for monogamy. An example they use is um, the prairie vole. And the um, mo- montane vole. So uh-huh. they're both little ratty little animals. Uh-huh. But one ratty little animal, the prairie vole, American, American <laughs> values. <laughs> I don't know where the montane voles are from. Okay. But um, <laughs> the prairie voles have oxytocin receptors that make them monogamous. They they bond with one vole, they raise their pups together, and, Interesting. Okay. and uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know, they stick together as a little family. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Sure. Montane voles do not have the same receptors, and so when they have pups, they just leave them. Uh-huh. They, don't, they don't rear their pups. So it, Like so, we were talking about last week exactly. with the so, bonding of mother and child. Exactly. Oxy- that doesn't happen with right. them. So oxytocin has more to do, like, well, oxytocin has to do with creating a family unit. Like, so you don't just abandon your baby because they're useless and they're slowing you down. You look at that baby, you're full of oxytocin. You go, that baby's cute, that baby's mine. I'm taking that baby with me. I'm going to pinch his little face. That's right. And um, in Love Sense, the way that Sue Johnson talks about oxytocin, she makes it sound like oxytocin only happens during breastfeeding and sex, Mm -hmm. but we learned from Dr. Stantakin that oxytocin happens all of the time. Mm-hmm. So it could be like we're thinking of our, like you're going away next week, you're leaving me alone. I can think of you and still have that boost of oxytocin. Right. Also, and that'll prevent you from having an affair with a dude. Exactly. While I'm not in the yeah. I, I think I'm gonna lay with a with a prairie vole. We're no, just gonna cheat together. No. Bestiality, still cheating, Lisa. Super gross. I dude. learned that from Boston Legal. Prairie prairie dogs are just too small. Yeah. Oh God. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Oh, I totally lost my thought because I was thinking of doing a vole. Um, no. No. Oh yeah, but anytime we experience empathy, we also get oxytocin. Uh-huh. So like any, so we feel oxytocin. Right. We we get a lot of oxytocin while we're falling in love, while we're bonding with someone. We get a huge dose of oxytocin when um, we are breastfeeding or whatever. When you have a baby, gross stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> but oxytocin is everywhere. Oxytocin is also closely associated with dopamine, mm-hmm. which is like the happy drug, and is o- often associated with um, like. Uh, you say, oh, someone's addicted to porn. 
Like, they're going to porn for that dopamine boost. People are addicted to video games, blah, 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 blah. That kind of stuff. That's a dopamine boost. I think also some actual drugs are a dopamine boost. I'm talking way out of my depth now. Get going. Move beyond this. Oh, I also didn't go on. Like, in this same section, Dr. Sue Johnson goes on a tear about the evilness of porn. Sure, she does. Which is just ridiculous. We talked about that a little yeah, bit last week. Yeah, it's not even worth talking yeah, about. Yeah. What I say to our listeners is you do you. Don't let Sue Johnson judge you. There you go. That's all, all right. I have to say. I think I'm done talking about this. All section. right. What do you so think? let's get right into the trench. Gross. Uh, <laughs> no. Do you no. mean that as the as the expletive? I, the C expletive, no, the I, trench I, kiss my trench? Uh, no, I don't mean it that way. I mean the underwater kingdom of the trench where the creatures known also as the trench live and breed. They are a little gross. They're little fishy monsters. They look like humanoids from the deep. They got the, old, the piranha teeth. Yeah, yeah, like that Roger Corman film. Yes. Remember? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That's the trench. So, yes, okay. The trench kicked off New 52 for Aquaman. The book is written by Jeff Johns. It's penciled primarily by Ivan Rice and inked primarily by Joe Prado. Prado does the art for issue six while Rice does the layouts. And for issues four and five, Eber Ferreria. I'm not as good as you. I did not I did I think not you, study. I would just say Ferreira. Ferreira. I did not study opera. Okay. He provides additional inks in issues four and five. I think we should also throw some love to Rod Race and his stunning color work on this story as well. Aquaman's orange scale armor has never looked more vibrant. I love the colors of this book. It is. The colors are beautiful. The art is inconsistent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we know why, because of all those credits. (laughs) So here's the basic plot. Uh, The book opens up on the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. For the first time in comic book history, we're introduced to the low bottom feeders of our oceans, these fishy monsters called the Trench. Like I said, also the name of their kingdom. Uh, Meanwhile, in Boston, Aquaman stops a gang of bank robbers and catches nothing but grief from both the crooks and the police. You need a glass of water or something? Like, dude, like, where do you get off busting Aquaman's chops? The guy's a Justice League member. Like, even with his silly fish armor... He's still a Justice League ma- member. He knows Superman. He knows Batman. You don't want to mess with a dude who knows Batman. Um, anyway, Ugh. Arthur returns to Amnesty Bay to catch some grub at Sam's Seafood Restaurant. And again, like we said earlier in this episode, catches nothing but uh, hell from his patrons. Which They're- I understand. It seems like Aquaman eating fish seems sad. Uh, yeah, but also it's no different than us eating cows and stuff, right? Yeah, it, but that also makes me sad. I know it does, Lisa, but we do it. So landlubbers eat landlubbers. So why shouldn't fish uh, men eat fish? But we don't we don't like uh, mentally telepathize bond with them and tell them to do stuff. I guess we do. Uh, I mean, like we're like horse carry me. It was, yeah, yeah. It. I think if you. In, include aqua telepathy into this whole mix. But as Aquaman says, his aqua telepathy allows him to see what small creatures the fish are. He tells people in the restaurant, he tells that blogger in the restaurant that they are, you know, uh, they've got little primeval brains. They're, they're, they're not advanced intelligence and therefore he Delicious. can't empathize yeah. with uh, a shrimp. So he loves eating shrimp. Well, I bet you if he 
empathize with the shrimp, he'd ha- get a nice dose of oxytocin. But that does not mean that this blogger should condescend to Aquaman or that anybody should condescend to Aquaman and tell him right to his face, you're nobody's favorite superhero. Rude. And you could see the hurt in Arthur's e- expression there when he, he leaves in a huff. It's very sad. That blogger is clearly one of the hot take type bloggers. But that sets up the basic tone of the book, right? You know, it's Jeff Johns addressing the perceived notion that modern audiences don't have a place for Aquaman. He's too silly, but Johns is going to show all of us how rad the king of Atlantis can be. Arthur is inspired by his lighthouse keeper father, and he pledges to guard the shoreline from whatever horrors come their way. His lady Mira doesn't necessarily agree with him leaving Atlantis to protect the shores of Amnesty Bay, but she loves him and wants to stand by him in this decision. I think she's above and beyond supportive, especially when it involves leaving everything she knows behind him, maybe skiing. Mira is awesome in this book, and... This is the storyline that made me fall in love with her character and makes me want other writers to take her on and truly elevate her beyond Aquaman's girlfriend. She needs her own book. She recently did just have a miniseries, but I would read The Adventures of Mira and I would take Aquaman and put him into as a second class character. She's her. way more powerful than than he is. Just you wait when we get into Rebirth, Lisa. I'm she so- punches Superman, <gasps> knocks Superman Across the block. I'm with her. He probably had it coming. Oh, I can't. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I don't want to spoil anything. I don't want to spoil anything. But the the majority of the book is that the trench attack and Aquaman shows the people of Amnesty Bay what a badass he is. And that's basically it. You know, there's also some conspiracy stuff dealing with who really sank Atlantis back in the day. But mostly the book is about these two badasses trying to find their place amongst us lowly, gross, hateful humans. Does that mean we're not talking about Lost and... No, no. We're talking about that. Okay, cool. And we'll talk about that issue in which Mira just goes out shopping for dog food. Yes, because we gotta. Lisa, I think the place we have to start when discussing their particular relationship in this book is Arthur's relationship with Atlantis itself, because it's a little bit different than what we saw in Mira Tidebreaker. Right, because it seems weird to me that Aquaman seems so desperate to stay on land and make his duty to be protecting the shore like his dad did when he has an entire kingdom whom he's already won over against insane odds so that they would want him as has their king and now he's saying I don't want to be their king I would much rather earn the affection of, of the pe- landlubbers. Of the landlubbers, mm-hmm. people who are continuously rejecting him. And I think over the course of this story, we'll learn that Arthur Curry faced some of his most painful rejections and betrayals because of Atlantis. First, he loses his mother because of the ocean, and he later discovers because of Atlantis. Uh, he, Dr. Shin betrays him because of Atlantis. So no matter how much Atlantis loves him and calls for him and says that they need him, he's going to have an avoidant relationship with Atlantis because of those early rejections. Right. And he's just got 
done being rejected by Atlantis. The scorn that he is experiencing in Sam's restaurant is not that different than the scorn he has experienced from the Atlanteans because he is this half-breed character. But Mira mentions that he had won them over. Yeah, right, right, right. That's true, that's true. And actually, when they leave... Uh, Sam's restaurant, when he leaves Sam's restaurant and he goes to the lighthouse and he's having that memory of his father teaching him about the ocean, uh, Mira comes up upon him and Mira is saying, like, you know, why did you leave Atlantis? You finally convinced them that you were their king. And he said, well, maybe I was their king, but that's not something I ever wanted. I was never chasing to be king of a people. I'm much more connected with with the land, as you're saying. And he, he sees home as not Atlantis. He sees home as Amnesty Bay. Right. And I'm saying that that, that is a little bit of anxious attachment to the land, this little bit of clinginess that he needs to... Um, he needs to exercise. Yeah, he has to to justify, he has to prove to the people on land, I am a hero, I have something worthwhile to contribute, don't you like me, yeah. can't you like me? Atlantis has already accepted him, to use your word. Exactly. So he went through that whole process of fighting their scorn, fighting their rejection, he won them over, and now that he has it, he's like, well, this isn't good enough. He doesn't find it satisfying because he has this hole in his heart that is the loss of his mother, mm -hmm. but he tries to seek approval from other places and he's just not getting it. So here he comes back home to Amnesty Bay to Sam's mm -hmm. restaurant and he just meets a bunch of jerks. Yeah. <laughs> and he still always does the right thing. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he does leave those two gold coins for that waitress so that she can put her kids through college. He's still always going to be the better man and he's going to do it with a huge chip on his shoulder. And this scene at Sam's restaurant will echo through the rest of the New 52 run and still continues in the rebirth run that Dan Abnett writes. Jeez Louise, he cannot win. <laughs> well, no, no, not, not that he, not that he's still facing the scorn of humanity, although yes, he is. But the that waitress becomes a character in oh, his no life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, and so that scene ends and we get several pages of the trench monsters munching away on a fishing boat. Mm -hmm. And then we jump back to Arthur's house and it's Mira and Arthur on the couch looking through a photo album. Right, the decision has been made they, as a family, are going to stay on land. So now Mira is going, how am I going to make staying on land more tolerable, more yeah. uh, habitable for me? Right. So they're going through an old photo album, and there is this adorable picture <laughs> of little kid Arthur Curry in his snow pants, and he's skiing. And she looks at that, and she says the same thing that I say, like, Putting sticks on your feet and sliding down frozen water just sounds awful. Madness is what it is. It's it's it sounds too cold to yeah, me. No is what thank I, you. How I feel. Um, but she goes, "When can I try it?" And she's like, "And he's like, you don't you don't have to ski. You know, just because I've done all of these things doesn't mean that you have to do these things." Do you think Arthur understands what he's putting her through, like the sacrifice that no, she's making he, for him? Uh, I, no, because for one, she's an extremely strong person and she's going to be who she is wherever. And she's given the verbal agreement of 
I'm I'm willing to stay here. She didn't put any qualms. But she does have some backhanded comments every now yeah, and again. Yeah, but a dude who has his mindset is not going to hear that. <laughs> I hate to generalize, but like Ouch. as long as everything's going his way, he's not going to try to read too deeply in between the lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, he's telling her, you don't have to learn how to ski. And she goes like, doing the things that you do, you did, helps me learn about you. So she's building those mirror neurons. She's trying to catch up on some of those human experiences so that they can be more alike. Well, she does want to understand his appeal of this place. Right. Yeah, yeah. And she goes a long way to achieve that. Right. Over the course of these, just these few issues. Absolutely. And hopefully he makes it worth it. Well, we won't get those answers in this arc, but, uh, you know. Maybe but, we'll get it on the next episode, Lisa. But Arthur is looking out for Mira's feelings in the way that our partners are there partially to regulate our emotions. They are our intermediary with the world as need be. So um, when they end up go- going to Beach Rock because there is this infestation of these monsters that are just straight up eating people. Um, Turning them into cocoons. Yeah, she... Like, people call her Aquawoman, and she doesn't correct them, but he does. And he goes, like, her name is Mira. And the dot, dot, dot is, and don't get her pissed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't mess with her. (laughs) And then Deputy Wilson shows up at their doorstep and says, hey, there's been this incident. We don't know what's going on. Can you come and help? They follow Deputy Wilson to the scene. They meet the sheriff. The sheriff is like, Deputy Wilson, what are you doing? We don't need Aquaman and Mira mucking about in our crime scene. They're just going to get in the way. They're just going to get in the way. And as they're investigating the trench attack, all these humanoids from the deep lunge at them. There's many pages of action. I love all of the action. I love seeing Mira and Aquaman punching fishy dudes in the face. It's just good, good entertainment. They save the day. They rescue that poor dog from the cocoon. They learn that the fishmen, the trench, are wrapping up some of their food and they are bringing it back to their kingdom so that they could snack on later. But even after all of this, the, the, the police, the coast guard still don't want any help from Aquaman and Mira, despite having just saved all these people's lives. Right. Aquaman is trying to use his expertise. He's like, look, they've got bioluminescence. That means they clearly come from the trench. And then the guy from the coast guard is like, we appreciate everything you've done here. But we, we'll take it from here. And they say, like, and when the time is right, when we get through this, I'll make sure to tell the reporters that you helped us out, okay? We'll put you in a good light for once. So he is completely misjudging poor Arthur Curry's intentions. Yeah. Like, like him getting involved in some kind of media grab. So, like, while I appreciate what Jeff Johns is trying to do here, uh, I got through that whole emotional process at Sam's restaurant. When this is still occurring halfway through the arc and he's getting no love from these cops, even after these action sequences, I'm now really irritated and I'm on Team Mira's side. Aquaman, let's ditch these dudes. Uh, Yeah, Return to Atlantis. And Aquaman is trying to act too cool for school. Like, this didn't hurt my feelings. Yeah, but he's so crushed. He's crushed. And um, 
you know, he goes like, I don't care what they said or what they think. And she's like, yes, usually, but you've barely spoken since we left. So he's brooding. He's doing the man brood. And he's he's like, it's not them. I didn't want to have to ever come here. So now he's at... Dr. Shin's. Oh, right. Where Dr. Shin... Who has betrayed him in the past. Exactly. Was this powerful mentor for him, helped him get in touch with his powers, but when push comes to shove, all Dr. Shin was interested in is getting to Atlantis. So this kind of rejection from this mentor just reinforces all of those bad attachment feelings he got from his relationship or non-relationship with his mother. And like, Arthur, I'm sure there are other marine biologists you could have taken the trench creature too. But I in, guess he's the nearest guy in, in this Boston? neighborhood. I don't, I don't know. Not. Maybe I don't not. Know. Maybe not. Um, also, within the context of the trench monsters, we do get one flashback to him as a little kid talking to his dad. Yeah, during the attack. And he and he goes to the his dad goes to the end of the dock every morning. But his dad told him that he's looking for a specific whale. Yeah. And so he doesn't know that his father is waiting for his mother to come back. So that's another huge betrayal because his father, who became his main caregiver after his mother left, built their relationship upon this lie. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of emotional baggage. Familial trauma. With with the idea of Atlantis and what Atlantis has I think he's in a place where he feels like Atlantis has taken more away from him than it has given to him. Mm, mm, okay, cool. Yeah. Mm. Which he's like, landlubbers, please like me. And they will. They never will. They, they never, never will. will. Some will, but not everybody. Yeah. We will, Aquaman. I mean, I, I'm straight up on Team Aquaman. I'll read an Aquaman comic now any day over a Flash comic or a Green Lantern. And that's the truth. That's big talk. Really, it comes down to who's writing the books. Let's yeah. be real. But I, th- I really am enjoying the mythology around Aquaman and Mira, and in particular that relationship that they have. Let's dive into where Arthur <laughs> and Mira travel to the trench. Yeah, which so, is basically the ending of this story. Right. So Mira sees like what devastation these creatures are capable of, and so she wants to just seal up the trench and kill all of the monsters. Obliterate them. Yeah. But Aquaman empathizes with them in a way that he did not empathize with the fish he was snacking on at <laughs> Sam's diner. Well, because when he uses aqua telepathy with the trench, they have a little more sentience than your average mackerel. Can he telepathize with them? I don't think he can because the whole telepathy thing is that he can con- control their actions. He had no control over these trench creatures. Do they creatures. mention that in the comic? They do not. Yeah, that's interesting. They don't. So, um, but Mira sees them as mindless creatures who all they do is harm. Well, where- we do see translations of their language in the beginning of the book when they're just going food, Yeah, they're food, like splotch, splotch things. Yeah. But is that... A, a translation for us, or is that a translation for Aquaman? I think that's for just us, for yeah. our benefit. Mm. Mm. Um, so Mira's like, they're mindless creatures. All they do is destroy things. And he comes back with, that's what Atlantis says about humans. So he's identifying with them as an other. Mm. Like, these are misunderstood creatures, and I know where that comes from. He is His mirror neurons are working on overtime to identify with these needle-mouthed you know, mush faces. <laughs> um, so they discover while they're while they're exploring around down there. He just dis- they discover that the race is under threat. 
They're inbred. They're dying. The food's gone. The food's gone. The queen is angry. And so they manage to... Oh, they've also made their little nest on the inside of a sunken Atlantean ship. Right, right, With, like, right. some kind of crazy ancient language on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a before... Like an Atlantean ship from before the time it had sunk. Right. So, um, but on the walls, they have a bunch of these cocoons. And so they have to drag up all of these cocoons. And, but then... Like, the trench monsters are getting angsty, angry. angry. And so Arthur is pushed to triggering a volcanic eruption where he ends up doing what Mira said to do. He ends up sealing up the trench and killing all of the monsters. But the guilt that he has from killing that race of trench monsters, he carries into the next issue. Right, right. And that next issue is where he starts to explore the origins of that Atlantean ship that he found. Right. And the trench story is done for the most part. Right. So the next issue, it starts off and Aquaman is in the desert. What? Huh? How did he get here? What? I guess we'll just have to keep reading to find out. But before we do that, we have like one little like stab in between the ribs oh, yeah. of Aquaman. Give it to me. So they come back. They've brought the cocoons. Oh, It turns right. out the death count is only two people, it turns out. Yeah. Which I think is crazy considering how much sl- gnashing teeth we saw. But um, Aquaman reunites a son and a mother. And, you know, he's assured, you know, you've done a good thing here. And he's, of course, like all defensive. Like, don't sound surprised that I did good. I'm a freaking hero. I'm awesome. I'm a fishing hero. Yeah, I'm a fishing hero. Um, but then the kid goes like, you're my favorite superhero. And that like warms his heart cockles. And then a Coast Guard guy is like, I still don't like him. <laughs> and then a laugh, just Jeff like Laverne Johns. and Shirley. <laughs> well, you know, that kid is responding to what that blogger was condescending, right? You know, Do you think that kid read that blog? No, 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 no. But what? I, but for that's ending the conversation right. for Arthur. You know, who cares what certain people think about him. What's important is what he is doing. And if he keeps doing what he's doing, he will be recognized as the hero that he is to some. And that kid in this sequence answers that for him. That kid, did you notice that that kid is the same kid who lost his dad yeah, on the fishing boat? I did, sand? yeah. Uh, and they rescue a dog. They do. Aqua dog. Aqua dog. Aqua dog. Yay. I wonder if he resents being called Aqua dog and he's like, hey, my name is Steven. It's not Steven, Lisa. Guess what? What? I know his real name. What is his real name? I'm not going to tell you. We're going to keep it till the next episode. Oh, my goodness. So much suspense. I'm just waiting for the other flipper to flop. (laughs) I don't know if that even makes sense. It sounded fishy, though. Uh, It did sound fishy. Next issue starts in the desert. Aquaman on the driest of lands. And it's one of those stories where... As it goes along, we flash back to how Aquaman got here. It involves people, Atlanteans, secret Atlanteans, coming to retrieve that sunken ship, that special ancient Atlantean vessel that he found at the bottom of the trench. He gets onto their ship. Their ship takes off. He jumps off of their ship. He lands in the desert. That's the gist of it. And he has to be rescued by the military, you know? So it ends on Aquaman can't take care of himself in the desert, (laughs) which Jason Momoa showed that he could in the Aquaman movie with the help of Mira. Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't like the way the media portrayed it, it was just like Aquaman just wandering about in the desert like a crazy guy. (laughs) And it reinforces the stereotype that Atlanteans 
have water as a weakness. Like right. their, their relationship with water is a weakness. But Mira proves that it is, in fact, so while a that strength. issue in the desert is setting up this whole Atlantean conspiracy and putting Aquaman out of his element, the next issue where Mira goes to buy dog food for Aqua Dog answers that newscaster and shows that water is not a weakness. It's your weakness being away from it. Right, right. While he's in the desert, Aquaman has like this last temptation of of Christ Christ moment where he sees a mirage of his dad and we get a real condensed list of all of Arthur Curry's insecurities, which I think we should pick apart one at a yeah, time. Let's what hear do you think? Him. Read them to me. So he's face to sand, kiss her to dirt, and uh, he comes to and he's like, Dad? And his dad is like, the water never did anything but suck the hope out of life, didn't it? Ugh. The water never brought us, brought us anything but pain and misery. Right. So this is his dad going like, you know, that relationship with Atlantis, all is all it's done is steal from us. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's a poison in our lives. And that last temptation of Christ moment is just continuing his discontent with his place in, in the world. Right. But then the, the dad mirage contradicts itself and says, no, no, that's not entirely true. The water gave me your mother and your mother gave me you. But then Arthur comes back with, why didn't you tell me about her? So why did you keep this huge secret between us that I had a mother? She was extraordinary, but because of circumstances out of anybody's control, she had to go away. It's a good question. It is an excellent question. And um, the dad answers, well, it was just too painful to talk about, frankly. And, And so he goes like, dad, please help me. It's hard to live a life of isolation, isn't it? You and I have both done that. Like going back to Arthur's sense of otherness. You can never truly be with human human beings. You can never truly be with Atlanteans. You're something completely alone. But he has Mira, right? Right. And I wish he would recognize that as a truly special connection. And he pays lip service to it every now and again in this arc. You know, he says, I love you. He acknowledges that how much he appreciates her sticking by him. But at no point in the book does it really feel like he understands truly how special his relationship with Mira is. Well, he does have a huge insecurity hooked on that relationship, which the dad then brings up. But your mermaid came back to you. Mm-hmm. Mira is a wonderful woman, Arthur. Do you ever wonder if her past is really behind her? Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. then um, Arthur replies, I trust your dad. But clearly he doesn't because... this mirage is coming from his head. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, dad says, I'm not sure what your mother would think about giving up the throne of Atlantis for her. Is Arthur giving up the throne of Atlantis he for her? He threw it away. He threw it away. I think he's giving it up for himself. Yes. And he's giving it up for his father. Yeah, yeah, Filling yeah. that role of being the guy who guards the shore. Yeah, I mean, he wants to be, he wants to be the Justice League member that he already is. He wants to live up to that idea. He wants the news to respect him. He wants the bloggers to respect him. He I, really does. Mentally, I want to go back to that first memory of his dad that he had in the first issue of The Trench. Okay. Because the conversation starts with young Arthur asking, 
Why are you a lighthouse keeper, Dad? You could be the captain of your own ship. And he says, well, even the captains need someone to guard the shore because they're doing their captain duties. And yeah, he's protecting them. He, Yeah, yeah. So Arthur wants to protect. He wants to guard the shores. That's, that's who he wants so to be. He I'm, wants to be the shorekeeper. I'm wondering if he's the one selling himself short. That going, Aquaman's the one? Yeah, because he's going like, because we're saying, hey, Aquaman. You're equal you're, to Superman. You're a captain. Yeah. Like, look at what your capabilities are. Yeah, you're are. a king. You're bulletproof. You're super strong. And yeah, you talk to fish, but that's awesome, dude. Yeah, why can't he be like T'Challa with Wakanda? Why can't he find pride in being the king? Or maybe not even pride, but finding duty in being the king. The difference between T'Challa and Arthur, though, is that Arthur is a, a half-breed, that he does come from the land as much as he does Atlantis. I think that his whole dedication to guarding the the land goes back to his fear of rejection. And like, that bonding he had with his dad. Exactly, because he goes like, well, if I try to be one of the justice, one of the bigger guys of the Justice League, if I try to be Superman, I'm going to get my feelings hurt. <laughs> I'm, his fifis. Exactly, he's going to get his fifis hurt. <laughs> so he would much rather keep his responsibility small local mm, mm, mm. yeah yeah he he like batman has his gotham why can't arthur have his amnesty bay yeah. yeah 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 superman's got metropolis but superman also has the world so let's go back <laughs> now to his last temptation of aquaman but like, again like atlantis is also your amnesty bay he could still keep it local and be atlantic but what is the satisfaction out of receiving love that you already have. He sure. doesn't want that love. He wants the love right, that right, comes right, 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 difficult. Right, right. Yeah. Agreed, he wants agreed. it to come hard. Yes. But anyway, come hard. <laughs> Silly. Um, anyway, um, back to last temptation of Aquaman in the desert. Um, so he goes like, you know, I want, he tells his dad, I want to protect the shoreline. And he's like, and dad says, like me, you're not like anyone up here. Up here, they laugh at you. And then this is when Arthur goes like, this is not my dad. And uh, dad goes on to say like, you say you're protecting the shoreline, but the truth is that you want to live up here because you feel like you belong, even though you're terrified that you don't. Mm. Like, so even though, even though Atlantis has accepted him to the point that they want him as their leader, that the love that he's already receiving is less worthwhile than the love uh, that he could earn. And yeah, that's that, very human. Yeah. That's so, very human. And then, then we get the like little statement that's the title of this mini arc. No, you don't. You'll never belong anywhere. You'll always be lost. And that is that well, is the crux of arc of Aquaman's discomfort. Uh, like uh. the the reason why. He can't settle. And the reason why he's asking so much of Mira and asking less of himself. 
Yeah. Okay. So real quick, let's go through the last issue, which is very much a standalone issue. It's Mira going to get food for Aqua Dog. She's got to go down to the local Amnesty Bay pet shop, buy some puppy chow, and she encounters the manager of this place, Randy. Gross. Super gross. Who, when we first meet Randy, he's hitting on Jennifer, uh, Jennifer, one of his employees, and it's a very much a Me Too mo- moment. And then enters Mira to interrupt this uh, sexual uh, aggression. And Randy, of course, sees Mira in her skin-tight Atlantean scale suit and goes, hubba hubba, you're hot. Let's, let's talk. And she's immediately repulsed. He lays his hand on her and she breaks his arm. Right. Snap. Yeah, and everybody's shocked she's broken an arm. We got to call the cops. We got to call the cops. And she's like, well, maybe he'll learn his lesson. Yeah. Not yeah. to just reach out and I touch women. I could have killed him. He's right. lucky. Right. And so she starts showing her power and drawing up all of this water. And the cops are there. And, um, but then she overhears on the radio that there is a man threatening to, who's holding a, a gun to, to his, his daughter's, daughter's head. head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had already killed his wife. Yeah. And so she hears that and she's like, okay, well then I'm going to get into the back of that police car. and Take, I- take me there. Exactly. Take me there. And she, you know, she lets them chauffeur her to the crime scene. She listens to a little while to the hostage negotiator, try to talk this guy down. And she goes, nope, I got this. Kicks the door out, uh, steps out of the car, and she makes quick work of this pathetic father. Right. She starts drawing the... So this is a great moment because this is the moment, you know, somebody goes like, oh... The dad goes like, well, you're just a fish out of water. Ugh. What are you going to do? Ugh. And she goes like, I don't know how my, I don't know how Aquaman puts up with all of the stupid fish you say, but water is not my weakness. Water is your weakness. And she starts drawing the water out of this man's body, like with her powers. And she goes, dehydrates him rapidly. She dehydrates him. And she goes like, what's going to stop me from just pulling the last of your of the water out of your body and letting you die? And the daughter goes like, I'm going to stop you. And she's like, this guy killed your mom. Like, why would you want me to not just murder him where she stands? And the girl goes like, well, he's still my dad. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's still attached to her. She's still attached to him. And Mira has this total disgust moment of like, human beings are just so ignorant. But then we roll right into a flashback of her and her dad and her dad assigning her the task. So this goes back to the timeline that now falls within- Mira Tidebreaker. Mira Tidebreaker, right? Where her dad is asking her to kill Aquaman and to kill Arthur Arthur. Curry. Mm -hmm. And she- finds herself empathizing with him and and going like, he hasn't really done anything wrong and I can't kill him. It just doesn't seem like the right thing to do. And, and her dad goes like, well, if you don't kill him, you are betraying me and mm-hmm. you are no longer part of this family. And she goes, well, that's who I am. I'm the kind of person who doesn't, just kill right. innocent people. We see her separation with the Zabellian people because of her, uh, maybe not necessarily love of Arthur at that moment, but that 
empathy that she has for Arthur in that moment. Where and, up until that point, her family right. had othered him to the point yeah. where she was willing to kill him without even knowing and him. And so this memory stops her from killing this guy because of how his daughter sees him. Right. Yeah. It's a really cool final moment. And it's it's the issue that cemented my appreciation for Mira as a character. One, because her powers are incredible. And I don't think I had seen her abilities used in such a vicious and, you know, superhero-y way before. But she doesn't have, like, the people-pleasing hero complex that Aquaman has. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't, She's not here to make friends on land. She doesn't want to be recruited into the Justice League. Nope. She's fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that brings us to the end of The Trench, uh, Aquaman of the New 52. Lisa, thoughts about this book? Did you enjoy revisiting it? You had read it before back in book club many, many years ago. Uh, did you? Do you is this an Aquaman and Mira that you would like to see more of? I think yes. It's a fun book. It's really exciting. I think that the story in The Trench like gets more interesting the more I read it. I really find like this empathetic side of Aquaman really interesting mm -hmm. and how that idea of empathy is something that Mira is just learning, I feel. Yeah, for me, what I find the most attractive about this book is their relationship and how they really do feel like partners and equal power sets. And more time is given to Mira. I'd like it to even out a little bit more as the series goes along. It doesn't actually quite happen. It's always Aquaman's book. His name is still on the title. But I would love a comic called Aquaman Mira or Mira Aquaman. Yeah. You know, like, like we've seen with Wonder Woman, Superman, and, and we're going to get Batman, Catwoman in the in 2020. I would like to see an equal footing comic between those two. And these, th these two from this particular book, like th their characterization in this book, I really, really like as a couple. You say that they're equal in power sets. You're talking literally like... They, superpowers. Superpowers, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. within their relationship, I still feel this kind of patriarchal thing where Aquaman seems to be calling more of the shots. Like Aquaman is going, I want to stay well, on land. that's what I'm saying. Right? What I'm, I don't know if that's necessarily Aquaman as much as the writers, as Jeff Johns, <laughs> as the publishers. You know, this is still an Aquaman book. And what I'm saying is I would like it to be an Aquaman mirror book where they are on equal footing. And... Mira gets to make some decisions besides what kind of dog food she's going to yeah, buy yeah. when she goes out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, of course. Yeah. And I love the trench as uh, an entity, as bad guys to punch. I think visually they're really, really interesting. I love the way that Ivan Rice draws them. I, I, I think they are a great villain. I'd like to see more of them. I'm much more interested in them than I am the Atlantean uh, conspiracy stuff that but, ends this book. But story-wise... They're closed off. Like, they all got killed. Apparent, the trench they, is closed. That's what it looks like. But I can tell you that the trench come back, Lisa. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So final thoughts about in what you see of us in this book, what you see in Love Sense. Um, how are you relating to these people as a couple? Relationship-wise, I do see 
Mira giving a little bit more. She's willing to take this, take the hit of leaving everything she knows behind to live on land, to try new things, to maybe ski, right? But I, I see her giving a little bit more in a time where Arthur really does need more, where he is still reeling from the lies that his father told him and the betrayal of his one and only mentor. And so I think that this is a time where Mira is doing the right thing by putting herself in the back seat and letting him drive a little bit until he finds himself. But I think that, like, Arthur would be remiss to not see the sacrifices that she's making Mm -hmm. and look for the opportunity to give her the reins back a little bit in, in their their familial decisions. Yeah. I really wish I had kept going with the Jeff Johns run, the new 52 Aquaman. The second volume of this series we both read is not particularly interesting to me where it's called the others. And it deals with the end of this book and the the conspiracy of who sank Atlantis and all that. And the answers that are found there are not particularly engaging. And it becomes less interested in that second volume with the relationship between Aquaman and Mira. That's a shame. Yeah. Um, So I, I wish I had answers for you of, where this relationship goes within the new 52. I'm just thinking, like, if I was with Mira and we went out to get a latte and Mira was like, you know, I'm really trying to support Arthur. He's really going through a rough time. (laughs) And I really find myself making a lot of sacrifices. And I would tell her, you know, you are doing the right thing. He needs a little bit more. You are the one holding the spoons, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you feel like enough is enough, when you feel like you can't give anymore, you do have to draw that line in the sand and tell him. And sh- like, cause there's a lot of things that you do in a relationship that you don't necessarily like get a gold star for. Like, you know, sometimes you do the dishes and I don't mention it. Or like. Right, right. Um, but sometimes I go like, look, Lisa, I did the dishes. Yeah, yeah. I want a pat on the head. But, and there is a lot of that in a relationship where you want the other person to recognize what you're doing for the household, mm-hmm. more or less. But if you're keep like keeping score in a relationship is a mistake. But if you see yourself, if if Arthur looked at himself and goes like, I seem to be the one taking, taking, taking. I think I'm in a, an emotional place where I can give again. I think, I, I mean, like that that moment is coming. What I see in this particular arc in the trench is that Arthur is very caught up in his own self-doubt. Right. And because of that, he does dismiss or maybe even ignore what Mira is doing for him and what she may or may not want because she is saying, yes, I want to support you. She is telling him I am committed to what you want to do in this scenario. She's giving all of herself to him to make the decision. She is putting him in the driver's seat. I wish he would engage 
about I, w- I wish she would engage what that what that means because maybe because I was just thinking like she is from Zebel like so maybe she has and maybe that rift with her dad over not killing Arthur is why she's it's so a huge thing for him. her so she's like well I you know like I don't really have any friends in Atlantis anyway while they are very cooperative in this book, it is building to a moment, I would assume, where there will be conflict for the decisions over the decisions of what Aquaman makes here. Yeah. You know, and as much as I want to see couples uh, in harmony, there is going to be an argument that results from the end of this There's going to be like the, you know. The, the, equal, the equilibrium has to be restored in their relationship. Right, 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 right. And, and it's a give and a take, obviously. Sure, sure. I think if we want to bring love sense into the conversation, I think that Mira is onto something going through some of the physical activities and recreating some of Arthur's childhood experiences like with the photo album. Exactly. Like I think her trying to go through some of the experiences that make human beings land lovers human. Right, shopping for dog food. Exactly. She's empathizing with them. I think that that is a good intention and I think that that It's healthy. It's it's healthy. It's empathetic. You're creating common experiences over which you can you're Bond. reducing otherness, which is very important, important in a relationship. <laughs> and I think, of course, Aquaman could reciprocate. He could, they could maybe do a long vacay in Zebel, see the fam, visit her old haunts. Well, they've got the others to deal with, Lisa. That's not going to happen. I did Google while we were while we were podcasting because I am multifaceted and multifunctional. What? Um, Fish oxytocin is called. Oh, God. And it is called isotocin. So all of these, so in human beings, oxytocin. In birds and reptiles, mesotocin. In fish, isotocin. These are all neurochemicals to do with dealing socially with others. So you go like human beings, we're social creatures, but pretty much everything is a social creature. Hmm. Just extra added bonus knowledge. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, Brad, we're done with Aquaman New 52. We're done with Jeff Johns and the trench. So where are we going with Aquaman and Mira next? Well, Lisa, I leave you on Wednesday for New Orleans. No. So we're not going to have time to record another Arthur and Mira episode for next week. Ooh. But I think I want to do an episode, a special bonus episode around the Overlook Film Festival. Um, my experience is there. Uh, there may be a guest or two on it, but it'll be Lisa-less. Sad. Sad, sad. I think our listeners will protest. Please do protest. It would do a lot for my ego right now. (laughs) So we'll have a special Overlook Film Festival bonus episode next week. I'll get some comic book talk in. And then we'll return the week after to the next logical jump from the new 52 Aquaman, which I think is the DC Rebirth line. Yes, another new volume in the Aquaman line itself, Volume 8, Issues 1 through 6, written by Dan Abnett, illustrated by Scott Eaton and Brad Walker. 
These comics are collected in Aquaman Rebirth Volume 1 entitled The Drowning. Spoilers, I just read this for the first time and I had a lot of fun with it, but I am a little curious to see if Lisa will like it as much as she did New 52 because it does return a lot to Atlantis. And I know she doesn't like the Game of Thronesiness of Atlantis I stories. I don't enjoy a kingdom. You don't like kingdoms. I don't even like a fiefdom. There's, there's more kingdom talk in this, but it also focuses more on the relationship between Arthur and Mira than even what Jeff Johns is doing in this book. And I think it's going to give us a lot of fodder for a conversation. Right. Okay. Well, love sense wise, we're moving into part three, love in action. So I can't wait to see how Dr. Sue Johnson decides to put her practices of anti-kink monogamy Party time. I can't even finish that sentence. I'm not excited. <laughs> you are not loving Sue Johnson the way you were Brene Brown. That's for sure. But Lisa. Yes. Where can our listeners find you online uh, this week? Next week? Maybe future weeks? While Brad is leaving me for adventures with others, though we are monogamous, not those kinds of adventures, get out of the gutter. I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Brad, mm. where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. Uh, don't forget to follow the podcast at CBCC Podcast, and you can now email us cbccpodcast at gmail.com. And you can commit to this podcast by following us, oh, subscribing to us on Spotify iTunes, and Podbean. And while you're on iTunes, why not give us the gift of five stars and write us a super flattering, maybe a little flowery, maybe using some Atlantean fish expletives in your review. Dan Abnett loves fish expletives. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so fishing excited! <laughs> Lisa. Yes? Keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy. Bum bum ba da bum bum ba da ba.